0: When I am in a city and I cross paths with a a homeless person or a beggar on the street with a a, a kind of a poignant sign, I never quite know what to do. My mind races. If I give him money, what's he going to do with it? Don't they have programs in this city for people like this? Isn't the church reaching out to him? Oh, I should give him a few dollars and be a good Samaritan. So we casually use that phrase, Good Samaritan, for people who are nice to other people, get them out of a jam when they didn't have to. Indeed, the the name has worked its way into many cultures. We uh, know of a number of hospitals at home and abroad uh, who are called the Good Samaritan Hospital. Not only that, but there are laws on the books in many countries that that are called Good Samaritan Laws. They protect those who choose to serve and tend others, maybe in an emergency or people who are injured. And sometimes these laws protect you if you're trying to do good from making a mistake or for having the victim die uh, on your watch. Um, In Canada, Good Samaritan Doctrine is a legal practice that prevents a rescuer who's voluntarily helped a victim in distress from being sued. And um, we call these the Good Samaritan laws. Now, it might be easy from these usages and a superficial reading of this parable to say we just ought to be good neighbors. We ought to kind of have a mind for those who are in trouble Maybe we can't help everyone, but it, this is the kind of person we ought to be. When I was um, growing up, my mother, who was uh, a churchgoer and was raised on, on the Bible and the prayer book, gave my brother and me a verse. It was kind of our motto. And mine was, Be ye kind one to another. I think she gave it to us after she had seen us fight so often that um, she wanted to put in a good uh, um, remedy and maybe put it into our minds we shouldn't be doing that. But I I always kind of resented this verse. It was only much later when I became a Christian that I read the full context of the verse, which is, of course, um, as Christ has shown kindness to you, it's not just a moralistic principle. This parable on the surface looks like a moralistic parable. Have some compassion. No, don't just be a hard-hearted neighbor. But um, if that's true, then this would not belong in the list of biblical parables, because all the parables contain the gospel in one form or another. Indeed, I will be bold to say that all the parables speak of Christ somewhere and somehow. And I love the parables. As you know, I teach apologetics at a seminary, and um, part of the challenge of being an apologetics person is uh, to learn how to persuade people. And um, the two big extremes to avoid are, you know, give them the elevator talk, the whole package in just a few minutes, get it off your chest. The other one is don't say anything at all. The parables are like time capsules. You know those medicines you can take that that release the the goodies, you know, over a few hours or a few days? Because I think when you first hear them, you think, okay, great story. Some of them are very clear. I get it. Others, you have to let them work on you. I'm pretty sure the person who was asking Jesus about the good neighbor, the lawyer he's called, had to go away and think about this. for a while, and then I'm going to try to tell you what I think dawned on him. Um, these are the, the wonderful things about the art of persuasion in the parables: is that they it can persuade you by getting in the back door. Some people even call this back door or side door evangelism. Well, where's the gospel in this parable? Well, let's uh, notice first that Jesus is confronted by a lawyer. So in the Jewish hierarchy, the rabbinic religion, there were lawyers. These were not primarily litigators. They were experts on the law of God, which was contained particularly in the five books of Moses, the Pentateuch. And Jesus had gained quite a reputation as an interpreter of the law, and he'd upset a lot of people by explaining the law in a way that didn't fit what they were used to hearing. So this, this lawyer comes and puts him to the test. Now, um, the word there used for test could be hostile. He might be trying to trick Jesus, although it could just be he wanted to know. He had a question for him, a test question, because he wanted to know the answer. I incline towards that view myself. doesn't matter. Um, whatever the case, it is... The question, not only he, but everyone on the planet ought to be asking. How do I inherit eternal life? I say they ought to be asking it because many people don't ask it, but they should. And some people are asking it. As I look at the history of recent times, both in Europe and in North America, I believe that one of the deepest trends we can identify is meaninglessness. I won't go into all the details of why I think this, but from college campuses to just uh, ordinary people you meet, uh, listening to the media, reading books, you find there's an incredible inability to say, what is this all about? And one of the things um, I have taught over the years is that human beings have all kinds of ways to evade this most important and deepest of all questions, the question that needs to be answered at least before we die, hopefully much sooner than that. And some of these evasion tactics I call bargaining. You remember the story of Faust, one of the founding myths of Europe. Here was this wealthy doctor doing all right for himself, And he meets a mysterious man named Mephistopheles, code word, the devil. And the devil says, I can give you a lot more than what you've got. I can make you look young for a long time, get you much richer, give you a great reputation. And as he goes on like this, the doctor says, well, um, yeah, but what's the catch? And Mephistopheles says, no catch. Well, there's one thing. At the end, you have to give me your soul. So the doctor decides, I'm not going to do this. And then the story goes on, and I won't spoil it for you. This is a case of bargaining. You bargain your soul away for something that is good in the short run, but in the long run will be deeply, deeply dissatisfying. And there's so many ways we do this. Um, I'll put off the religious questions until later and then later, somehow, never comes. Um, Some people bargain by being very successful, going after that job, or that person you want in a relationship, or that position, or that place you want to live. And um, then comes midlife, and in some cases, they crash and burn, and the bargaining hasn't worked. We have lots of ways to do that, but this lawyer seemed to know that bargaining time is over. I need to know now. How do I inherit eternal life? And you know, eternal life in the Bible doesn't just mean living forever or existing forever. How many times have I talked to people who say, you know, the idea of heaven is boring to me. I don't want to just live forever. Heaven is not living biologically forever the way we do now. Life in the Bible is fellowship and friendship and communion with God. It's eternal because... What other other kind of way would it be if you're having fellowship with God? But it's not so much eternal because it extends a long time, though of course it does, thankfully. Um, You know, we'll have just begun when we've been there 10,000 years. But the point of it is not the years, it's, it's the quality that's involved. We're not sure how much the lawyer understood that. He maybe just wanted to know, am I getting there? Do I have a safe passage? Do I have the right policy? Whatever the case is, he asked the most important question anyone would have to ask. And I hope that most of you in in this sanctuary have asked that question and, and have found the right answer. Now, there's an issue right at the top here, because he says to the teacher, rabbi, that's what Jesus was, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Now, he puts it in terms of performance. There's a part truth to that. It matters what we do. And Jesus goes with him part of the way. Here's what you do. You love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and strength and mind. Four qualities which basically mean your whole self, your heart. The Old Testament teaches this, the New Testament teaches it all over the place. That's, That's exactly what you do. You also have to love your neighbor as yourself. From Leviticus. That's also something you must do. If you do this, you will live. Now, that's true, isn't it? If we love the Lord God perfectly, and we love our neighbor perfectly, we're going to live. But there's a catch. Nobody can do this. And so, Jesus the master apologist asks him a question. What's written in the law? He gives the right answer. And then he turns and says something quite radical. Uh, I don't know if some of you remember um, Columbo, starring Peter Falk. And, you know, he wore the trench coat, and uh, he would size up the situation, and then he'd go out of the room, and he'd say, one more thing I got. I don't know. Jesus, I think, did this quite a lot. Remember the rich young ruler? Um, he asked him the same question How do I inherit eternal life? And uh, he said, Well, you know the commandments. And he gave him the human commandments love your neighbor, commandments. And then he said, Well, I've, I've done this. So Jesus goes, One more thing sell everything give it to the poor and follow me. And the the dear guy couldn't do it. So we're not done because he says, desiring to justify himself and who is my neighbor? Now again, justifying himself might not be quite as hostile as it sounds here. He wanted to know if he was on the right path, which is good. And um, he gave this radical answer in terms of a story. It's a devastating answer. It happened on the Jericho Road. I don't know if you've ever traveled to that part of the world, but the Jericho Road is about a 17-mile stretch that connects Jerusalem to the city of Jericho. It's a very dangerous, treacherous road. It drops over 3,000 feet at one point. It's rocky, um, and it, it's a winding, descending, remote road which for centuries was the favorite place for thieves and robbers because people were pretty defenseless. So indeed, a man, no identity is given, goes on this Jericho Road and he fell among robbers who beat him and stripped him and left him for dead. So this uh, would have been a familiar event in that part of the world, it was a dangerous road. People didn't go without some protection. But there's a point to giving it this twist because uh, first a priest and then a Levite went by and they looked the other way, they walked on the other side. Um, We imagine that they were on their way home from temple worship in Jerusalem Maybe they didn't have time. Or maybe they were afraid that he was dead, and the, the law says that you can't touch a dead body. It might have been costly. It might have cost them their position to do that. Whatever was going through their mind, they just could not stop and see what was going on. Now, before we all say, oh, I, I'd never be like that, um, Think about some of the times you could have done something, should have done something, and didn't. It doesn't have to be giving money to a homeless person. That's, a, that's an issue. But um, when you see somebody in need, and yeah, it might cost you some time, it might cost you your reputation, but you just don't want to go help that person. Uh, or you might justify it. I have a whole lot better things to do. I have kingdom things to do. I'm serving God. This, would, this is a distraction. Um, for whatever reason, they couldn't do it. And then, a certain Samaritan, it says in the King James, um, as he journeyed, came and where he, when he saw him, he had compassion. And of course, the compassion took a remarkable form. He bound up his wounds, Oil and wine was the favorite medicine. It was the first aid of, of the day. And, and it was costly. And then he puts him on his own animal and leads him, and this is dry, dusty, rocky road, so it's, it's treacherous to do that. And he led him to an inn. Presumably, he had stayed at this inn before because the innkeeper seems to, to trust him. But um, he puts the man up, spends the night, takes out a fairly large sum of money. And he says, oh, take care of this man. I'll be back. And if you incur any other expenses, I'll, I'll, pay, I'll pay the rest of it. So, it didn't take a lot of rabbinic savvy To answer Jesus' next question, who do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? Of course, it's the man who showed mercy. Now remember that the Samaritans were a hated people. I don't know if you've lived in a country where there's a whole group of people that are just hated. Not so long ago in the American South, a whole group of black people were hated by a whole lot of white people. But you can multiply the the example. Um, Or if you grew up in a home where people of a different background were suspicious. um, The Samaritans um, had a long history of um, differences with the Jews. and yet you had to go through Samaria to travel to the most important parts. They even had a different theology. They believed in one sacred mountain, whereas the Jews believed in another. You remember, Jesus discusses this with another Samaritan, the Samaritan woman. And um, interestingly, Jesus doesn't say, you know, it's all going to pan out. It doesn't matter anymore. He says the Jews are right on this one, but the day is coming when we will all Worship in spirit and in truth, mountains won't matter anymore. And here, why pick a Samaritan? Is he just trying to egg the lawyer on and, and push his buttons at a place where he had prejudice? No, there's a much deeper reason for that. The lawyer answered rightly that the, pers- the hero in the story is the one who had compassion. And Jesus told him to go and do this. This is going to be the complete answer that I wanted to give you. But notice something very subtle in this text. What had the lawyer asked him? The lawyer had asked him, who is my neighbor? Probably the religious leaders of that time, maybe most of the Jews, had gotten so used to being in a minority that they were protecting themselves. They took care of their own. They were a tribe. And as you know, some of the leaders of the Jews protected mostly the other leaders. They, did, they kind of disdained um, the lower class people. They hated outsiders. They hated certain groups, tax collectors, publicans, and so forth. Anybody who had been caught in a public sin, don't touch them, don't go near them. And, um, This lawyer wanted to know what category of person he kind of had to love. And he was maybe hoping Jesus would say, well, you know, love your colleagues, but take better care of your mom. Remember the law law of Corbin said you could put money in the treasury and then you wouldn't have to take care of your elderly people. Or maybe he was hoping that Jesus might say something like, Try to love the Romans a little better. I know they're your oppressor. Um, I know that they've given you a very hard time, but you know it's not right to just withhold love from a whole category of people. We don't know what he wanted to hear, but he wanted to hear the category of folks that he really ought to go and help. And Jesus doesn't answer that question in the way it's asked. He said, which of the three proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers. In other words, he changed the question from who's my neighbor out there so I'll be sure I can, you know, do the right thing and I don't have to worry about the others to who do I have to be the neighbor to? What qualifies as neighborliness? One word. Compassion. We talk a lot about compassion today. There are even ministries called Compassion International. But how many of us In our hearts, sense, compassion to people in need. The victim was obviously the kind of neighbor you ought to love. But the point of the parable is not how many victims do I have to love. The point is, do you have a compassionate heart? See, it's much more than doing to be a believer, to have eternal life. You can do a lot of good things. In fact, you can do many of the things that religious people do without at all being a believer, without being in Christ, without being saved, without being in that fellowship with God. What makes the difference is your heart. And we're born into this world with hard hearts. The Catechism says we're inclined to evil. You know, in high school, you remember studying inclined planes in geometry, and the laws of Newton say if, you know, if this ball is up here, a marble or whatever, it wants to go down. And unless it's stopped by something, it's gonna just keep going down. Our sin is like that. We're inclined to sin. Unless something stops it, it's just gonna keep expanding. Well, what can stop the ball from rolling down, the ball of sin from rolling down the inclined plane? We know the answer to that, Jesus. But where is Jesus in the parable? simple. He's the Samaritan. He is the hated outsider who showed love in a way that none of the insiders were able to show. He is the hated outsider who comes and pays the full price for the redemption of every victim. Because in our sin, we are stripped, wounded, and like dead. That's what it is to be a sinner. Maybe not physically, of course, but spiritually, if we don't know the Lord, we are dead. And only the compassion of the hated outsider who came and paid the full price for your sin and my sin, only then can our hard hearts be softened. Only then can that sin ball be stopped and the inclination reversed and Jesus here is teaching in a time capsule kind of way the guy had to go away and think about it oh I see I have to have compassion and how come this Samaritan is the one you mean it might be the hated outsider Jesus that's the way the gospel gets into us into our um, hardened hearts through the back door sometimes And um, then Jesus could say, go and do likewise, because only people whose hearts have been changed by the compassionate one can practice compassion. Now, another way of saying this is that mercy is not possible for you if you've not known mercy. Real love is not possible for you or me if we have not known real love. Paul says, if you don't have love, you're like a noisy gong. You're nothing. If you don't have the love of Christ breaking into your heart, breaking your heart, your sinful heart, invading your life, and turning you in to a loving person, you are, I am nothing. But here, it's so wonderful, isn't it? The victim couldn't do anything for himself. As sinners, what can we do? We're, We're half dead. But the hated outsider came down from heaven, became man, grew up, learned the law as a little Jewish kid, became a rabbi. And then within weeks of this story, will go to Jerusalem, where these priests and Levites had come from a religious service. And instead of conducting religious services there, he would die. He would be put to death in the most heinous, unjust crime ever committed. A crime guided by God, so that death itself may die. Jesus would become sin for us. He who knew no sin. He would do far more than the Samaritan who paid for a couple of nights in an inn. He would pay the entire cost of your salvation and mine. And when we know this kind of mercy, we then will become properly merciful persons. Now, this doesn't just answer, should I give a coin to the homeless person? There are some good biblical answers for that. Um, Programs, church activities, not every church can do everything, but every church can do something. There are wonderful, ideas about mercy ministries. I'm sure Christ the King has a number of mercy ministries. But we can't do that with any integrity unless we are first people of mercy. So, fellow victims left half dead, do you know the mercy of the hated outsider, Jesus Christ? Has he changed your life so that not perfectly, But substantially, you're becoming a person who looks out for those who are in need, a person who wants to help, a person doesn't care enough about what he owns, what he looks like, what his reputation is, that he's going to stop caring. Or are you, am I, like the Levite, don't want to touch a dead body, don't have time, we have a meeting to go to, whatever it is. Am I a merciful person? If I'm not, I can become one because the hated outsider has shown mercy on me. And if I am, I can improve it because of what Jesus has done and what he is. This parable, like every parable, is all about Jesus. It's all about what Jesus can do for you, or for me, or for any victim, which we all are. And then, when we know this mercy, we may have not just inherit, but have eternal life. We may know the joy, the friendship, the fellowship of God now and forever. Who would want to bargain that away? Let's pray.